Coming up this weekend, live action, live football, Saturday the 9th of December. Abala against TNS, live on S4C. So join Malcolm, join myself, join Dolan Ebenezer, Nicky John, McParry, join all the crew. Mark Jones, Tommy Morgan, press that red button, listen to the guys. What have we got? We got a five o'clock on S4C, kickoff 5.15, TNS obviously going for another title. Abala, up and down, up and down season. Had a post, post there, got better, knocked out the Welsh Cup, so they'll be looking to react, they'll be looking to put one over the champions in this big clash and keep on climbing up that league. Colin Caton's men will be trying to get one over. Scott Risco's boys, so tune in, five o'clock, S4C, Kickoff 5.15 this Saturday. Okay, here we go again. On my way to the next episode to record. Episode number seven, I think it is. I'm just driving here in North Wales, passing a place called Penagroyce, about five minutes from the destination. Doing this one from the guest house. Lives in a place called, a very small village called Agroislon, just in the foothills of Snowdonia. Beautiful place, I'm, I'm just looking now. Keep my eyes on the road, of course. But we've got the Nancha Ridge skyline place of outstanding beauty and just over those mountains the other side of them in fact is is where this guest is is famously from again a small village Daniolen um, and and he was the the local boy done good really had a career as a footballer he's a retired footballer turned pundit now um, so really looking forward to sitting down and chatting with a guy that I've got to know over the last few years with, within the the Welsh media uh, Malcolm Allen, cult hero in Wales, um, and it's going to be a bit different for us to speak English together. We, we, Welsh is our native tongue, um, but I, but I do feel that that Malcolm's story is is something that people are here in Wales, football fans in Wales are are really familiar with, and uh, hopefully this is a little opportunity to to broaden that and, and get people. Who maybe don't speak Welsh to to get to know him, his personality, um, and his story more than anything, his story because a, a professional footballer for for Watford, for Millwall, for Norwich, for Newcastle, Welsh international, three international goals in fourteen or fifteen appearances. I'm pretty sure he'll go into detail about those. He'll describe them as he likes to do in much detail. Um, but also talking hopefully about you know and it's something he's very open about the troubles that that came with injuries and you know with suffering from dark times in his career and how I guess alcohol led him down pathways that um, in hindsight he wouldn't have gone down so 
I'm sure we'll get into it. He's, as I, as I said, he's, he is quite open about that sort of thing. Um, and I'm just getting into Groyslon now. Looking forward to meeting his dogs. He says he's got a couple of dogs, Mish and Mash, who can be a little bit lively, he says. A few barks here and there. We'll, we'll see how we, uh, how we can control them. And also a budgie. So let's see if the budgie makes a little appearance on the podcast. Probably... Probably will end up talking more sense than Malcolm. Hopefully you enjoy getting to know this week's guest. This is the man, the myth, the legend, Malcolm Allen. He likes to tell you if anyone will listen About his seven caps, his chocolate knees, his distinct lack of pace. Now it's a long shot. Malcolm Allen. Malcolm Allen. This is a bit different, isn't it? Speaking English together. <laughs> Sorry, doing that. <laughs> no, I can't understand that. No, I know because normally when I speak English, I speak with a bit like a Cockney with a with a Geordie accent. So if I bring that in, just let me know. Well, tell us, tell us why. For people, you know, a lot of people certainly in Wales are aware of your story and uh, your career, your, the troubles within your career. But the the accent when you speak English, explain. Um, well, I couldn't speak a word of English when I left home. You know, I'm from a village called Dane Holland, which is not far from my home now. Um, it's in the middle of the mountains. Uh, there's only 500 people live there. Everyone speaks Welsh. Everyone helps each other. Um, great characters. Um, and then I got this opportunity to go and play football. It's all I wanted to do. I wanted to live my dream. And when I left to go to Watford, um, I remember my mum and dad went down with me and we stayed in a hotel and uh, we signed the forms because then my mum and dad had to register my forms to, so they took responsibility as a football club and they met Sir Elton John and they couldn't believe, you know, they'd never been out of Dainolin before. I think my mum brought a passport yeah. down to Watford with us but she didn't, uh, um, she didn't need it, need it of course but they put us up in this Hilton Hotel and we was in the Hilton Hotel we were sitting around this lady came over and she says, uh, we were all speaking Welsh obviously and she said, are you ready to order in a, you know, in a uh, Cockney accent? Uh, in English, obviously, and she's and, and my mum had the best English, and my dad and me looked at my mum, and my mum says, "Yeah, um, uh, we'll have three steaks." And the lady said, "And how would you like them cooked?" Uh, and my dad looked at my mum, my mum looked at me, and my mum turned to her and said, "In the grill, please." She said like that, 
And the lady looked and, you know, chuckled a little bit. And we thought, well, why is she laughing? Anyway, she said, uh, uh, well done, shall I take it? And my mum said, yes, please, three well done. So that was all over and done. So that's how naive we were yeah. towards the English language. Um, I knew I had to learn it uh, because to have that fantastic opportunity to go and play f- football professionally. And Watford was my first club with Graham Taylor um, there as well at the time, obviously. Um, so it was a great chance for me. So I could not speak a word. I was fighting more down in Watford than I was at home because uh, everyone used to just take the mickey out of my, uh, my English. But there was a great man down there, Tom Wally, who was originally from Carnarvon. He still lives in Watford. And he spoke a little bit of Welsh, well, a lot of Welsh. Mm. But uh, every other word was a swear word from Tom. Yeah. But, but, I mean, these days, it's probably a bit different. I know friends who have moved from North Wales to South Wales, and then when you see them again in six months, they, they speak like a taff. They've got a South Wales <laughs> accent. Whereas, you know, we are, I've, I've travelled... But I think these days, footballers come from here, there and everywhere. So down in South Wales, the Swansea dressing room wasn't just South Walians. It was, it was everyone. So I don't yeah. think my, my accent quite changed quite as much as yours. <laughs> Could they understand you, though? Because um, cause you know, I've never had that Welsh accent. Yeah. You know, you, you, when you moved from North Wales down to South Wales to Swansea, you did have a North Walian accent. Did Swansea boys understand you in the dressing room? I think I think you have a Cockney slight Geordie twang. Mine is a little bit more as a, as a touch of Scouse. People think yeah, you're, yeah, from, you're from Liverpool that way, um, but it's all about different experiences, isn't it? You know, it's shaped your your life. Indeed, indeed. Having the opportunity to move and and live in the bright lights of London. Yeah. As how old are you? Sixteen. Sixteen. Yeah, so young, raw. Did, did you go down there to start with? I went on trial to Manchester United when I was thirteen, and uh, I remember Ron Atkinson. Fair play to him. He gave gave his time up to see all the players who were on trial. And I remember him saying to me, very slowly, because again, I couldn't understand his English very well, and he said, Malcolm, try and be a jockey. You, you, you're too small to be a footballer. Yeah. And I came home and I told my mum and dad and sulked about it for a few months. And then asked, mom, asked them to buy your horse. <laughs> <laughs> I should have done, I should have done, you're right. But then what happened was my mum said to me, what are you going to do? Are you going to just take one man's opinion? Are you going to roll your sleeves up and prove him wrong? And that was maybe the motto of my life. I wanted to prove people wrong. I proved people right <laughs> a lot of times as well. But um, I proved people wrong. And it gives you more of a determination, I think, more of an attitude, a stronger uh, character yeah. when somebody says, you know, good enough. And it's a message I like to give to children who I coach or young players who I coach and say to them, look, there are, there are people who are not going to like you maybe, but... You might get a person who does like you, and then you'll get that opportunity. And that's what I did. I got, I went down to Watford, scored some goals in the trials, and then the rest was history. I, I think, I think that one of the biggest things I take from from playing football and living here, there, and everywhere, meeting different people, is it shapes your personality. Um, in terms of, I think it makes you a little bit more streetwise. Certainly, mm. being from North Wales, you live in, you know, places where you have to be a little bit more streetwise. Yeah. How how did it change you? Because now you you know you're this you're seen as this lively character, bubbly. Mm-hmm. Um, what were you like as a kid? Were you shy? Were you quiet? And did the dressing room then change you and, and make you think I have to come out my shell a little bit? Well, I think the circumstances um, determined how I was at sixteen because I was a, a, a Welsh lad from the from the mountains from a little village who went down to the big city and it was uh, not easy, 
you know, the, the homesickness was real, real bad. I wanted to come home, 252 miles it was from door to door. It's a long way. Uh, and my mum and dad obviously couldn't afford to come down every week to come and watch me play in the youth team. But in the long term, it was the best thing I ever did because I remember ringing my mum after three months and saying, Mum, I'm coming home. I've had enough. I haven't scored a goal yet. Yeah. You know, I'm really homesick. I'm missing the family. I'm missing, um, you know, my friends. I'm missing your food. Um, and she said, look, Malcolm, do you want to go to the quarry with your dad yeah. you know, and your brother? And I said, well, no, not really. Well, you're living the dream. You know, this is what you wanted to do since you was 10 months old, since you start walking. You know, you carried the ball around with you, around the village. And look here, you're getting the chance of a lifetime. And, and anyway, I've given your bed to, to your brother. So I put the phone down. So it was tough love, yeah. but it was something that I needed. I needed a kick up the backside at that time, feeling sorry for myself. And since that phone call, really, after the first initial three months at Watford, I really buckled down and worked hard. And you've carried those words with you. Absolutely. I've never, I'll never forget them words because that's all I needed to do. And really, it's another message out there. It's what most people need to do. Yeah. Roll your sleeve up, sleeves up and work a little bit harder and your luck will come your way. Um, and that's what happened. You know, I, I really got my head down. I was a very confident person, no matter what. You know, I was quiet when I first went down there. But my football, on the football pitch, on the training pitch, there was no one questioning that ability. No one questioning that ability. It was just me settling into a different environment. Which of your mum's meals did you miss? Sunday dinner, mate, with mushy peas. I couldn't believe it. Yeah? Yeah, and if there was any mushy peas left over, I'd always have a mushy pea sandwich the following day as well. And if there's one thing I know about London, they like quite dry food, don't they? You know, the Cockneys that I've played with, if you go to the chippy with them, they, they just have chips, yeah, no sauce, they no gravy, not even ketchup, curry sauce. <laughs> no, no curry sauce, no gravy, it's, no, a, bit, no. it's a bit different down there. It, it is. Um, but you they, know, big, I, big Ewan was there. Big Ewan came, yeah. So you you, you and Ewan Roberts ended up being best friends, best men for each other. Yeah. Um, did you know each other, because he, he's I, from Hadleth, yeah. did you know each other had played against I'd, each other? I'd, I'd, uh, I don't know if he played against me, but uh, he saw my number on the pitch yeah. uh, quite a few times, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I did play. Did you get subbed? <laughs> that wasn't getting subbed. I think he was just chasing, chasing shadows that day. But no, me and Big Ewan and his brother, we played against each other quite a few times. And we, we're great pals still, you know, and that's the thing. You never lose a real true friendship. And, you know, he got an opportunity to go to Manchester United for four, uh, four thousand pounds, which was a hell of a lot of money for in 1986, for his mum and dad to turn down yeah. for Ewan to say, "Go where your heart is." And his heart was down in Watford with Tom Wally, who could speak Welsh, and with myself, who he knew, yeah. to help him sell. And we never looked back. You know, we scored goals in the youth team. We were speaking Welsh in the youth team. And the centre half used to look, "What the hell are they on about?" And I used to say to Ewan, "Do Steve Bill and I even don't care." You know, it was all kind of Welsh things going on, and they didn't have a clue. Um, but there was a partnership and we was not telepathic as such but we were definitely on the same wavelength because he was the big guy you know knocking things down and then obviously I was the little one who was uh, you know just scooping the goals in really and just brushing up everything or, or just smelling the chances out and any time that Ewan was in the air you knew that you were gonna, he was going to win most of them and more times than not he used to know where he used to knock the balls down as well yeah. so he used to be there already Recently I've watched a, an old documentary on you and yeah. you and you and yeah. big Nick Parry. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Nick. Uh, <laughs> he'll be listening to this, judging us. 
Uh, oh, there's no question about <laughs> that, you know. But, but I like that. As long as he's, you know, if he's critical, that's great. But construct, constructive's better. Yeah, that's what it's all about. But Nick went down there with his moustache, I think. He did, yeah. And uh, lovely documentary, real good documentary um, about two Welsh boys uh, yeah. trying to make the grade at Watford. And as it happens, as they were filming the documentary, uh, Ewan got his chance in the he first did. team. He scored did. on his, was it his, his debut? debut? yeah. First against, start against Man United at home. Yeah. Um, how did you feel? Pleased for your mate, of course, but he got that opportunity before you. No, I'd, I'd already, I'd already played in the first team. So you were dropped. Um, I was dropped, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I'd been in and out a little bit, and them days, Graham Taylor was really good. You know, unless you were somebody like John Barnes who'd go and make such an, you know, impression on the pitch. Yeah. Um, then you were always going to be in and out. So you didn't want to put too much pressure on youngsters, um, and that was fair. But I always wanted to play. I always wanted to be in the team. It didn't matter if it was Ewan Roberts or if it was John Barnes or Luther Bissett. I wanted to be in that team before then. Yeah. You know, and I always watched games if I weren't playing so I could learn something. I'm, I'm better than that. You know, I'm better than what he's done there. You know, I would always think all the time that I'm better. That's how I, that's how I lived my life as a footballer then. Yeah. And that's how I live my life as a press guy now, maybe, or a commentator. I always think there's somebody better than me behind me. So I, I always want to achieve more I want to get better and better all the time and I think that's part of my um, myself as a person maybe in my drinking days I want to be the best drinker as well maybe that's why I got into trouble because I got drunk and you know the rest is you know I will go into that later maybe but and you were successful in your quest to be the best drinker <laughs> I was a lot of times yeah you're right OTJ I was a lot of times but yeah um, but then Mr. Perry came to a rescue, so that was okay. <laughs> so, uh, Graham Taylor, best manager you worked under? Most um, I can't say that because I was very lucky. I, I played under four, in, uh, five international managers. You know, along when Mike England gave me my debut for Wales with Terry Yorth, then being my manager as well. I then had three international managers: uh, Graham Taylor, mm. who ex England, of course, then uh, Mick McCarthy at Millwall, and we had Kevin Keegan at Newcastle. So, you know, I had. Three totally different personalities. Graham Taylor left, uh, you know, his attention to detail was second to none. You know, there wasn't a stone unturned about other players and there was no um, video analysis at that time for players, say, like these days, if I was playing against a centre-half on a Saturday, I'd get a DVD of their strengths and weaknesses in a 20-minute in a DVD so I could watch at home, I could watch it ten times if I want. Yeah. We didn't have that. But Graham Taylor used to say to you, he speak to you individually, and then as a group, this, these are our tactics. Um, all the players used to buy into it the way, you know, it wasn't my strength the way they played, but as long as I was in the team, I had a chance of scoring, and that's all that mattered to me. Um, and then, so Graham Taylor was best at organising, uh, the organisation of things. Mick McCarthy was such uh, an enthusiastic coach, an enthusiastic man. Yeah. Uh, he demanded a lot more from his players than any other other managers that I had played for. And then Keegan, well, Kevin was just Kevin, really. He was just man a, a, a proper man manager, a proper person, a proper motivator because he made you feel the best player on earth before you went out there and played. Um, so, you know, different, different characteristics to all the managers, but you'd like to think as a person... And uh, you you spoke earlier about the personality that you the traits that you get yourself. You you take it off role models. You take it off pop people that you respect, um, and you want a bit of that from them all. And it, it, it's good looking back now. At the time, I thought Mick was a twat. Yeah. 
yeah. you know, you know, being so demanding of his players. But really, he was doing it for a purpose. He was doing it for us to win games. He was doing it to get the best out out of myself. You know, I, I, there's a massive thing in me now when I'm trying to coach and trying to drag ability out of players is to challenge them, challenge them with something different, because players' minds are different to normal people. Uh, you know, no matter how, how young they are, if you can manipulate their minds to try in every way to try and get the best out of them, then you've done your job. Um, so I'd like to think, you know, having my own personality and having the influence of these people around me, uh, looking back now, has made me a better person to where, to where I am now. You're talking there about how football has changed, tactics and stuff like that. You know, football's changed in the three years I've been retired. So you as a... Am yeah. I to say your age? <laughs> you can indeed, As a 50-year-old yeah. man. Yeah. Do you look back or, or look at football now, you know, that nostalgia and think, oh, I, uh, I played at a time when real men played football and the game was hard... Or do you have an element where you think, oh, I wish I played now? Not not just for the for the money and the finances involved. No, that never bothered. But but for the, you know what 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 they have in football, technology, when it comes to injuries, what they have, <coughs> you know that would probably be the biggest thing. Yeah, absolutely. And to start with, you know, I don't look fifty. Uh, we'll put it that way. Um, well, <laughs> I don't think I do. It's, well, you've got to remember, I did have a paper round in Dane Nolan with the wind and rain against him in my village when I was young. Maybe that's why I look 50. Um, but no, you're absolutely right. I do look at the game these days. Uh, one thing I don't like is people saying to me about the modern game. Mm. Because you can't tell me that um, Liverpool years ago when, you know, when they had uh, Houghton on one side, they had Barnes on the other side, they had Aldridge or Rush, they had Peter Beardsley in the, in the number 10 hole, uh, then they had Mulby and Whelan sitting in there, they had Hanson and Lawrence at the back playing the ball out. You can't tell me that they ran any less than what players do now. Yeah. They, you can't tell me that they played uh, one-touch, two-touch football any better than they do. Uh, they're not any worse than what's going on right now with Man City, for, for instance. So the modern game is changed with dietary, it's changed with fitness-wise. Yeah. Um, there's no question they would have been a better team if the, than, because I know for a fact once Liverpool played their game and won, they go out on the, you know, and have a drink after yeah. the game. You don't do that these days. I totally understand why. So yes, there's changes. But you can't tell me the Manchester United team of Beckham and Giggs on both wings and Scholes and, and Roy Keane sitting in there. You know, Scholes having the free ride to go and do what he wants and then uh, York and you know, Dwight York and Andy Cole at front with Teddy Sheridan on the bench, yeah. you know, with Solskjaer. So you can't tell me that the modern game is any faster than it was then. Um, but the, the players look after themselves a hell of a lot better. And I, do, I, I totally believe if I would have looked after myself, like I look after myself or prepare now for matches, yeah. you know, being a commentator, uh, as I did when I, did a, when I was a player, I might have, you know, maybe got a few more years or definitely I would have played, um, I would have played better in games sometimes, uh, looking back on that situation. But again, regrets is only a pain. Um, I just wish I could do it all over again. It's, it's like, um, you know, people, people look at football now and there's this Premier League thing, almost forgetting what happened before the Premier League era, mm. um, you know, which is obviously disrespectful. It's, it's just how it's gone with TV money and, and this and that. But in terms of tactics, like I, I've, I've read a book in the last couple of years, History of Football. So tactics, it's almost like it goes around in circles, yeah. doesn't it? Where whatever tactics, whatever shape, they played three at the back 50 years ago. Yeah. 
but then because teams start playing it now, it's like this new thing re- reinvented the wheel, which, I know, which yeah. is not the case. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting what you say. I, I was a part of seeing, you know, these GPS monitors coming into play and stuff. Yeah. But, when the understanding wasn't quite as good by even sports scientists. Yeah. So to start with, if I had a GPS on me, mm. you know, I could hardly run with my knee. But I, I could plod, so, yeah. I, so I could run. And then you look at the stats, how many metres or, or whatever kilo, mm. kilometres covered in a game, I'd be right up there with, with, with the rest of the players on the field. Yeah. But then as the years went on, they started analysing how many sprints you made <laughs> within those kilometres and I, I was a million mile off it, you know? So yeah, yeah. I would have made more sprints than I would plodding along, along I think. Um, but you midfield players, you've got to be up and down, haven't you? That's the thing, box to box. Um, but these days also, um, the level of fitness of the players is, they've got to be at an extreme. Um, that's as better, there's no question about that. Uh, the one-touch, two-touch football, um, was technical was, ability no, no difference no no different no but the fitness levels and that makes a hell of a difference you know players are running uh, eight and a half nine miles last year in, in premiership games um, here here in Wales we had Aaron Edwards he ran eight miles last you know in some games last year so you do think yeah there's a mile difference yeah. you know but that shows also in the quality of where the Premiership in England is and the Premiership here in Wales. Yeah. So, but the, you know, I'm sure that, or I'm certain that if Aaron was pitched up, you know, on a fitness ability, because I've seen him in pre-season, he would be up there with the best of the Premiership players. Yeah. Um, but then it's all then, the fitness comes with the quality. It's a knock-on effect all the way down yeah. um, on how you then approach the game. Um, some players get nervous, some players don't get nervous. But I just believe, yes, I think it's a great um, way that the Premiership have gone, that the players are looked after, maybe too much to an extent. But what I don't like is money was never a factor for me. It was an opportunity. Once I got the opportunity, I grabbed it with both hands and made it a success. Then my money came after that and I did very well. And I never complained about anything like that. But these days, money comes first for lots of players. And I do believe in three, four years' time, agents will be in charge of the game. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if, if a player's not happy now, he can tell his agent, his agent will get him a move. Or they'll create something that will get him a move. And I do believe that agents are more involved now than we know with football clubs as well as players. So I do feel that agents run the game. What I don't like is agents taking money out of the game and also players were earning £30,000, £40,000, playing in the reserves, and happy to do that for three years. Yeah. I can't cope with that, because mentally, I'm never like that. And I was never like that. How many, um, how many knee-ops have you had, Mark? Uh, altogether, uh, oh, if, that's, if, if we count in this summer as well, I've had four reconstructions, yeah. and five exploratory cartilage, cleaning up, that kind of thing. So we've had... A combined 15 knee surgeries. We have, have we? Yeah. Oh. When did you first start having trouble with it? Um, I, do you know what? I never I never missed a day's training. Uh, I never missed a game. Uh, I was 24. No, I wasn't, sorry. I, I've got to be, I'm, I'm wrong. I'm, I was at Millwall. Uh, so it was Watford, Norwich, so 1983, 70s. I was tw- yeah, I was 24. Uh, I had my first knee injury. I went up for a header with a f- fellow called Phil Chap, centre-half for Charlton. I was playing for Millwall. I went up for a header. And as I flicked the ball, because I always jump from the side, you know, you look at centre-forwards these days um, against big lads. If you stand in front of them, they're, they're happy because you could, they can use your shoulders as um, a momentum, a leverage, if you like, 
to use as a ladder and just head the ball, use your shoulders and head the ball. Not when I was playing, I used to jump from the side, so they didn't know where I was coming from. So I was jumping with the ball 10 yards away. Not when the ball was above my head. That was too late, because he could get on top of me then and win most headers. But I, if I jump, when I jumped from the side, I went up for a header, I caught his hip, and I knew in mid-air that I dislocated my knee. Right. But when I, by the time I fell on the floor, I sat there, and I was sitting still, and it was numb. And I thought, oh, I'm okay. So I got up, tried to stand on it, stood on it okay. The, the trainer didn't even come on, uh, the physio. So carried on playing, next pass came to me and I just went to turn and it just collapsed, collapsed on me. I knew there was something seriously wrong. So it was before Paul Gascoigne had done his crucial ligaments because no one really had known about crucial ligament injuries in football yeah. prior to the Gascoigne one in the cup final. I did mine six months before then. And um, I remember speaking to Craig Levine, who's a, 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 you know, a captain, uh, of Hearts at the time up in Scotland and now he's still involved with football up in Scotland uh, I spoke to him and he'd had this carbon fibre put in the budgies agreeing with me at the moment so now we look he's in the background there are you agree? yeah he's got a tear in his eye there look you know just going through the same old story or he's saying oh no not this one again <laughs> so I'm uh, yeah so he's had this carbon fibre an operation experiment from America he's put it and he's come back you know he played back in, uh, for, for Hearts, and also he played international. Yeah. Um, and he said, yeah, Mal is, is really strong. So I had it in the, in the London hospital, in London Bridge Hospital. Um, Paul Allen, I'll never forget him, because he, same surname as myself, he operated, and he put this carbon fibre in my knee. Eight months later, I was in the first team at Millwall scoring goals again, so no problems. But four months down the line, from then, I signed a new contract for three years at Millwall, trying again back in the Premiership, and um, and Newcastle come in for me, and they knew about the knee, yeah. but they said, "Look, we're going to take a chance. You know, we're only paying four hundred thousand after uh, it was three hundred and another hundred if they stayed in the Premiership that season or something like that. Anyway, so four hundred thousand, and it was a great chance for me to you know jump ship if you like, going from Millwall in the Championship straight to Newcastle had just been promoted." Uh, so there weren't a lot of talking with Kevin Keegan and me on the phone. I just said I'd be on the plane tomorrow. I signed before 12 o'clock to play in the Premiership first game for Newcastle against Tottenham. Um, but that's when I, when I passed my medical, I knew my knee wasn't right. I knew my knee wasn't right. I was just I, he's happier times now in Newcastle. He's happier now, see? Oh, snowy there. Thank you. I know. You understand? He understands everything. He's, he's like my dog, he speaks Welsh. I, you know, I, I, I ask people, do you speak Welsh to some people? And they say, um, I can't speak it, but I understand it. I said, my dog's like that. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to do a podcast this budget. <laughs> you get more sense, mate. So. You get more sense, I think, with it. No, but I won't open the case, you know, because he'd be on your head. Well, do you know what? We had a budget when I was growing up uh, called Nico, when we lived in Penrose in, in Bangor. And when it was uh, old and... You know, on his last legs, or last wings, got him out of the cage just to give him a little a little pet on the head. And it, it just flapped its wings, scared the shit out of me, and I dropped him. And uh, that's that's when he did die. So. That's cruel. That, that no, was just stroking him. No, him, no, you're poking him, not stroking him. <laughs> no, mate. Now, they say you heat up your hands sometimes on, on birds. Uh, I know this is handwritten as well, because, you know, from birth... I don't know why we're talking about budgies at the moment, but you know, I might as well. But no, 
I didn't even know we had him until about six months ago. And I uh, came home one night and Rihanna bought a budgie. Brought him home on the bus. I couldn't believe it. Anyway, he's with us now. He's been a star on BBC Radio quite a few times. Yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah, said. When I've been doing live, uh, live interviews on the radio in the morning. Especially about Swansea. Because everything about Swansea, uh, he, he went quiet. When Sigurdsson was sold yeah. from Swansea, he, he absolutely he didn't fuming. speak to anyone for three, three days. He was fuming. Honey. He was fuming. Yeah. And he said, it, he, I mean, the, the time he did actually pipe up was when I was doing an interview about you know, Swansea. Yeah. And uh, he started piping up then. Yeah. What's, what are you thinking about Clement? Can you see him now? He's putting his wing over his eyes. He's not happy now. <laughs> he's, he's, he's gone like that. He's put the wing over his eyes. He's not happy at all with Clement, mate, no. Do you know what? Sometimes when I record these podcasts, I get a little bit peckish. I get a little bit hungry. I feel the need to fill this little belly of mine. What better way than by having a couple of packs of Jones crisps? Quality, proper, thick crisps. Strong taste on all the flavours. You know the usuals. Ready salted, salt and vinegar, cheese and onion. Those sweet, sweet chilli ones. I actually gave a pack to somebody the other day. One of the last ones I might add. And they just turned to me and they said, how thick are these crisps? How firm are they? Are these potatoes on steroids? No, no. 100% Welsh potatoes. A very respectable family-run business. They support outdoor activities in Wales. So why don't we support them? Support your local community and stock up. Whether it's a restaurant, a cafe, or just at home, buy a couple of boxes for Christmas. There is only one, there can be only one. Forget your Pringles, forget your Golden Wonder, forget lining Gary Lineker's pockets at Walker's. Jones Crisps. Back to you, Mel. I, I opened up the question. There is one question, with the unborn Phillips, he's, he's asking, when are we going to get Malcolm Allen on Twitter, Instagram, social media? Oh, really? <laughs> Any interest? Um, what are they? <laughs> no, um, do you know what? You need a smartphone, don't you? You're still, still <laughs> stuck on the old Nokia. I still put 50p in the back of mine, mate. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, no, since Euros, um, BBC actually put a little bit of pressure on me just to um, try and be on you know, on Twitter and Facebook and things like this, but I've never, I've never been interested. I'm quite uh, privileged, I think, in my way of thinking that I don't really, I'm quite private in that side of my life. Um, I always have been, just that there's been instances under the influence of drink maybe where I have been put out there <coughs> and been uh, national paper news, but not anymore. Um, I'm not interested in Facebook. I'm not interested in Twitter. I'm, I don't even read anybody else's Twitters. Uh, Ewan Roberts keeps telling me, look, you get you know more work if you want to be on Twitter and things like that. And I'm sure that you do. But it's just never really interested me for everybody to know my business more yeah. than anything else. That, that, that was going to be my, my question, actually. You say you're a private person, but through you know your experiences, unfortunately, things have, things have got out. And, and this is probably before the days of Twitter. Whereas, you know, whatever you were, you were up to, yeah. you'd be getting filmed. There'd, there'd be footage of that these days. You know, how, how much have you learned from, from those experiences? Well, I'd still be... I think I'd be in prison if that happened, you know, uh, these days. 
I'm just, I'm just glad that, you know, for, for any person out there, you know, when you reach rock bottom, there's only one way you can go. Well, there's two ways. You can actually die or you can come back from it, you know, and... Um, so what was your rock bottom? My rock bottom, I would say, maybe it was my divorce. Was my rock bottom. So that the fact you were getting divorced then led you to yeah my my divorce was a worse feeling than me retiring. It was a different feeling, mm. um, but emotionally it took a lot out of me because I couldn't see my children. Um, I was mostly to blame. But yeah. There's you know faults on both sides, but I take full responsibility. I I did then and I, I do now. Um, I don't look back on it so much these days because pain the pain of regret is something I don't like mm. uh, I'll stand up to it and I have done and I've got a great relationship now with my sons and my daughter they keep coming up for holidays and I go down to London to see them so so that's a great thing but um, I th went through uh, a, a bad two years after uh, the divorce more than I did after I retired so when I reached there, um, I remember calling somebody and I did say, I said, look, uh, uh, I'm maybe having silly thoughts here, what I'm going to do. Um, and he said, look, you're under the influence. I said, yeah, of drink. And I said, yeah. He said, well, don't you think you'd be killing the wrong, the wrong person? And that really hit a nerve with me because it was only the drink that made me feel and think that way. Mm. Um, no matter what happened in my life, I learned in the following two years to rethink my my way of thinking. So you were sad, so you turned to drink, but then made you it worse. To drink, I made it worse. And more trouble, more fighting, um, and everything came to a head. There was only two ways: I was either going to die, yeah. or I was going to, you know climb up the mountain the other way you know instead of being on this tree uh, where I was on the branch I was actually climbing the tree trunk mm. where and then I was getting help every time I tried myself I was getting help from other people without asking for it because I, w I didn't know about these things about uh, people places and things I was influenced by all them three pe th three three things and then three things emotionally got me upside down and that's what happens to a lot of people I can only control one person's emotions in this life and that's mine and I've realised that since then yeah I can't no matter what anyone says about me I don't have to give him a slap on, in, in, in his mouth you know before before he finishes his sentence I used to be so reactive to other people you know I've, I've read a book I, I forget which one but we've probably read the same one I would imagine because it, it says um, you're, you're sitting there in that situation you allowed people and things and places to affect your mood yeah 100% whereas the reality is it was you it was me it was nothing to do with them it was no. your problem with those yeah you know you, you, I remember Di Davies said to me more than once you know you're pointing a finger man. but who are the who's the other three fingers pointing at you know <laughs> I'm pointing a finger at other people and it's three fingers pointing towards me yeah and it makes sense it, and, it, and it made sense slowly. Yeah. It didn't happen overnight because it didn't happen overnight for me to get into a, a hole like I did. But over over the years, slowly but surely, 
take one step back first you know instead of you can only walk and take one step instead of, in front of the other smaller steps if you like but you will get knockbacks on the way and you have to swallow your pride a little bit and you have to go away and think and maybe have a read of something and go back and go okay that, I'm better now you know but in a better place I remember in the Euros a few times uh, you know I had to be in control of my anger management quite a few times it was tough to be I, away for that long it, because I was away for that long yeah. you know from the people that know me and love me because love is the strongest emotion there is uh, and I didn't have that around me yeah. you know and that's my security um, and I'm very fortunate that I've got a great partner in here now who's understood them because I've spoke to her yeah. about massive, massive saying in life is so true. You know, a problem halved, sorry, a problem shared is a problem halved. So you've learned from your mistakes. So to reach rock bottom after divorce yeah. means you have to go through some tough times to get to rock bottom. You don't just land there. Oh, they're not, yeah, but they're, they're, so they're, that led to the, you know, they're a million times better than the worst times. Yeah. Even, even you know, the times that you come to recover and get better mentally. It's a much better place than where you were, believe me. So uh, we spoke about the first knee knee problem and then trouble again in, in Newcastle. Was that the start? Did you would you drink before you got injured? Or was that the little start? You know, uh, one led to another. And because I know the the feelings, I always remember you saying to me, um, you know, as to sitting down and describing knee operations and injuries and, mm. and this and that, and you turn around and saying, "Why the fuck haven't you got a?" booze problem like I had you know everyone deals in things differently, differently don't they? of course yeah so maybe you in Newcastle would have gone out to the pub for a few pints yeah. made friends with the wrong people or something like that yeah that all led you down that path oh there's no question I've met some proper people in my life uh, um you know who have um yes to 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 an extent maybe influenced the way I was thinking at that time as well um I, I don't think we need to go through all them people because it was the wrong road you know yeah. but they are very very successful in what they do so you know that's them that wasn't me I pretended to be them uh, because again it's these people places and things influence you and you think you want to be because they they are treated like kings you know and queens and I wanted to be like that sometimes because I missed that adrenaline of playing football. Yeah. So I looked for it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. That was my biggest problem. When I wasn't training, when I wasn't playing, I had to fulfill every day in the end that adrenaline rush of playing football. And I couldn't get that back. I could not get that back when I retired. I went to a little slump, but it wasn't as bad as when I got divorced, yeah. you know, when I split up. When my, when my children couldn't see him and I couldn't speak to him, that was the worst part. Because it wasn't a sadness of missing the thrill of being on the football pitch or scoring a goal. It was it was more emotion based and it was more personal to you, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. And it's 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 a place where you you never want to go back to. Yeah. And if you've got that in your head that you've already been there, you don't need to go back there. And so, I didn't know a lot of people that do go, you know, back there. But it was just a time in my life where I'm happy to talk about if it can help other people, no question, because there is help out there. There is when you share um, with somebody what your problems are. But you build such um, a, a, a character in you from being down in these places. And also, for me, I was always trying to be 
the Jack the Lion. I don't need to be Jack the Lion no more. Mm. For a long time, I haven't need. Some people still think I am, and some people think I do play on it. Sometimes I do for the TV or the radio or something. Sometimes I do. Yeah. But I don't go down them routes that I did before. Yeah. I don't have to fulfil what, you know, what I tried to be, if you like. Because that was not me. Well, you talk about speaking with, with Rian now and uh, that being a big help to you. We're both members of the PFA, yeah. Members for Life. So yeah. an unbelievably big, powerful union mm. up in Scotland the Scottish PFA, you paid your subs 15, 20 pound a month and then when you finish playing, that's you done. So it's it's just, a, it's it's okay. not as big. No. So we're in a privileged position really where there's help there if you ask for it. Mm. Was it like that during those times for you or would you never even dream of picking up the phone? I, well, both. I wouldn't dream of picking up the phone and, and telling anyone of my problems at that time because I knew there were emotional problems but the drink made them worse. Yeah, that was my problem. So they would, they, I was scared of asking them that um, that they would point to the drink problem. Yeah, okay. But it was an emotional problem I had. But the drink made it worse, and I didn't care. That's the attitude I had. I didn't care what happened to me. You know, uh, and it was a horrible place. But so I wouldn't pick up the phone to them um, because I was scared of them saying that it was the drink problem. Um, obviously it was both uh, they started with the emotional problem the PFA did they speak to me did they know my problem I suppose they did know my problem because I know Kevin Keegan would have told them yeah. um, because he knew at Newcastle what was going on um, but no phone calls no nothing and I suppose it's got to come from yourself and it yeah, didn't definitely. come from me that, that's the thing they have so many Every current player, every ex-player that's ever played mm. professional football in England, that it's impossible for them to know everyone's feelings. It has to be you that makes the first oh, step. Absolutely. In in a day and age where probably there was no awareness of depression or, or if mm. if those thoughts ever came to you, you, you probably just had to sit there thinking, why is there a dark cloud in my head that that's affecting mm. my yeah. way of thinking? Well, like I said, uh, when I reached that first time, I made the phone call to open up for the first time, and I spoke to. A gentleman who was an ex-professional jockey, to be fair. Um, We've gone full circle here. Yeah? We have, haven't we? Yeah. yeah, but he was. And I never knew him. I never knew about him. Um, and I just picked the phone and I spoke to him. And he became my friend for life after that. Um, it, was, it was a case of, are you feeling the right person? You know. And when you think about it deep enough and you understand and digest it, well, no, I'm not. Because I wasn't born like that. I wasn't born, you know, with a drink inside of me. So it made me think at that split second that I now can live and I can do it his way. And that's what we did, you know, for two years. I stayed with him and saw him every week, nearly every day. And it was a case of rethinking. It's very complicated, but it is, you can do it. There's there's a, there's an option and there's a decision for everyone, you know. There's a choice. Yeah. There's a choice which way you go, and thankfully I had proper people around me and pulled me through. Happier times being involved in the wild squad. Yeah. You know, a dream. Something else. What was your first taste of um, meeting up with the squad and you know the stars that would have been involved in that squad at that time? Well, 
the stars individually, they were fucking, they were world class. You know, you're talking about Ratcliffe at the back and Southall in the goals, um, Ian Rush, Mark Hughes. It was later on in, in my career with Wales that gigs came into it. Yeah. So players that would walk into most international teams at that time. Um, it was scary to walk into the dressing room as an 18 year old. When you couldn't show that fear. I, I couldn't show it. I felt it. Yeah. But then I knew from that moment, like the young lads now with Brooks and Woodburn and Ampadu coming through and training with the first team, I knew I had to raise my game. And that's what I needed. Mm. That was the challenge that made me a better player by having training with the players, you know, and then being on the bench, coming off the bench, starting games with, with some of them. So I'm a big believer in if you're young enough, you're, you're good enough. Or the other way around, you're good enough. You know, it doesn't matter what age you're at. And I was 18 and I knew I needed a challenge. And the challenge was from them boys in the training sessions. I remember Pep Guardiola, and I'm a big believer in this. You train as hard as you want. You train and put in everything into training. And the games will be icing on the cake. And he's so right. Kevin Ratcliffe, I think, says that uh, you're a pest in training, that you used to try and kick him all the time. I <laughs> was trying to play out there from the back. Well, he, he, he did, but you know what, right? I've got to tell you about Kev. Um, scored against him a few times, to be truthful. I used to score quite a few against Everton. Um, but with Kev, he was the quickest thing I've ever seen. Really? He, okay, Rushy was quicker. Yeah. Rushy, over a 10 yard sprint, Rushy could turn round after five and wave to Kev. That's how quick he was. Yeah. And when Giggsy came, we used to pair Rushy with Giggsy. And Rushy did the same. That's how fast Ian Rush was. He was just on the front foot all the time. He was just on his toes, ready to go. But, but Ratcliffe, he was more of an organiser. He was a clever defender. But he was quick as, and he was a dirty player, mate. Yeah. Ah, he used to hang the ball out. Just, he, he used to pretend to make a mistake with his first touch. And then you'd believe as a player, oh, I'm going to get that first. So he can smash it. So he'd wait till I reach it, being a naive youngster, and he'd smash me and the ball, and then he always used to think, that's what you, that's what you, you need something like that just to wake you up. You know, he always used to do it all the time. And he got away with it for years yeah. at the top level. He got away with it for years at the top level. Did, did I can't read. I can't. I cannot believe that people that didn't read it in the end. Yeah, yeah. Did uh, didn't he take some money off you on the snooker table? Ah, he's a twat. <laughs> yeah, he's a cheating twat. Go on, uh, what happened? Um, yeah. Do you know what I used to make? I, I was on seventeen pound fifty. Not that you still bitter or anything. Oh, I, I, you know, he fumes me to this go on, day. Go on. Seventeen pound fifty, I was earning, and he was earning big bucks in the first team at Everton. Yeah. So then he said, "Look, I can't play for nothing." And I said, "Well, you know, I, have you played before?" Yes, I said, "I played." We used to have snooker roll in Daniel, and I remember Terry Griffiths coming to open the place in nineteen seventy-seven, and I played against it. Obviously, Terry won. Um, so I played. Uh, against Kev and we put a fiver on it and £17.50 a week come on yeah. you know and oh, some of the players they get £200 for playing for Wales I never took no money for playing for Wales I took tickets I got loads as many tickets as I wanted you know Alan Evans used to give me as many as I'd like um, so uh, when I played snooker at Wrexham it was we played uh, we stayed in St. Gotland um, Bryn Howell Hotel I think it was and then we played at Wrexham and he <laughs> played me for a fiver and he won uh, and then he said, Do you want double or quits? And I double or quits. And he won again. He beat me twice. Right? Yeah. 
and all through the game, and all he kept doing was winding me up. You, can, you ain't gonna pull that. You can't pull that. You're not good enough to pull that. That's all. He, and he honestly, he nearly got the kill on the back of his head. He was he was very lucky that I didn't drink at that time when I was eighteen. <laughs> <did he? laughs> and he took that money, didn't he? He took it. But we know now. We know him. We know him. We know now. him well now. Oh, how tight he is. I've never seen. Of course, him. he was gonna take it. Unbelievable. He, the last trip we did, I think we did, went up to Middlesbrough somewhere with BBC, and he he. he he bought a sandwich, and his missus had bought Sharon had bought a sandwich from Morrison's, him, him from Tesco, and it was twenty one p difference or something. Yeah. You know, and he'd go through, and there was no more salad in salad in mine than there was in hers. There was no more ham in mine than there was in. You know, <laughs> what do I need to know? Twenty one p. Oh, fair play to him. That's why he's got a house in Florida and a house in Spain. <laughs> <laughs> you have some good nights out. Oh, listen, listen, I've got to say with Wales, right? Um, and this is not no disrespect to anyone, but it was a sign of the times at that you know yeah. particular time. Um, the away games was like a stag do. Um, we played the game and would be out, you know, the night before the game. We wouldn't have a drink. Obviously, we prepared properly. Um, to, if, normally, we you know come together on a Sunday, either at Heathrow if we were flying off somewhere, or if we were playing in in Wales, we get together in Cardiff, or we get together uh, in Wrexham. And always Sunday nights, you know, it, it was straight into the pub, drinks, and then start preparing Monday. Some players would have one or two on Monday night, not a lot, and then Tuesday, prepare properly, look at their the, the, their last games, not individual analysis, just collectively as a team. Yeah. And then, you know, up to you then. Even normally, the managers, Terry and Mike, didn't name their side till the day out, till the day of the game. Um, kept, kept their options open but the big boys knew they were playing um, and maybe that's been uh, what's wrong in, in why we haven't gone to Russia this time maybe some of the big boys knew that they were going to play in, in this campaign where Chris has kept faith and he's he's been right to he's earned that right to keep faith with how well they've done but if you'd have brought the youngsters in a little bit uh, quicker I think that we'd have gone to Russia yeah. uh, that's not putting any more pressure than they need at this time on them because I truly believe um, you need challenging as a player, as a person. And we didn't challenge them squad of players enough uh, in this campaign. So it's easy now looking back and I wish Chris all the best um, in what he's done. He earned the rights to earn maybe the money he's getting at Sunderland. You can't tell me Sunderland's a better job than Wales for him. I think he suited him with a young family and everything, watching a few of the players play, you know, eight, prim eight international games in a season. Uh, he's, a, he's a good lad, he's a great lad, he's got um, a great uh, relationship with all the players and no one will forget what he did, um, the best manager we've ever had and I wish him all the best at Sunderland, I just don't think that maybe both sides done enough to get this done and dusted and for him to get what he wanted because he deserved maybe £750,000 a year like other international managers and that's the least amount that they'd be looking for. Um, I think he's somewhere around there where he's going to Sunderland and I don't think the FAW um, wanted to offer him half of that so you know both sides um, the disappointment would be mm -mm. if they bring in a big name manager on a big whack and you think I don't think that will happen no but if if somebody comes out of the blue oh, the, the only way it will happen I will tell you right now if Ryan Giggs became the, the next Welsh manager I know Wales are seen globally now as a football team and more importantly 
that they've got another language in Welsh, which we sold really well in France, and the, and the Football Association in Welsh had a massive part in, in, in that happening. But if they put Ryan Giggs, for instance, this is just an example, uh, he then gets a sponsorship, or the FAW gets a sponsorship of £4 million from somebody worldwide because of the, the brand, and that's the profile, the image rights of, of Wales now as a, as a football nation. Um, and then that will help pay maybe someone like that. But that doesn't guarantee any success. You know, I'm all for the new ideas. I'm all for it's a brand new page for when anyone who comes in. Um, if you want to play safe, go for Tony Pooh's. Um, maybe Bellamy in time would be his right-hand man for a little while, but then you'd pay them more than a million pounds between them. So I don't think that's going to happen. The most important role in all of this I know that he's put his name forward for the job, is the man behind all the success, and that's Oshan Roberts. The structure is in place. Oshan has built that in the last 10 years. He knows every single player uh, at international level, at trials level, at every age group. He, he sells Wales to every one of them players. Then obviously he's got managers and coaches to do that underneath it. But he's the most important person that he stays on board. If he doesn't get the Welsh job or doesn't get interviewed for the Welsh job, they somehow, the FAW, have got to get him to stay. You can't walk away from this. You know, he's the most important man that influences Welsh football in all age groups. Um, not just understanding and knowing the players coming through, but just with his training methods, his personality, his character. It would be just one jump maybe too far but you say that you know you look at you know, the, the, the lad at Germany was it Josh Law or something like that Joachim sure Law yeah. you know he, he started with the youngsters didn't he and came through and worked through yeah so, the, the interesting thing with Osh is he's put his name in the hat yeah. so if he doesn't get it and the guy, next guy comes in does he think well this guy wanted my job um, which is maybe why I can't see Pulis being, being the fit really I think you know, as the most experienced of the, the candidates we see. Yeah, I, 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 I like I, the Carl Robinson one from Yeah, I, I, th I just think Pulis, to manage our stars, Bale, Ramsey, Allen, I can't see it. And, and there's no track record there of bringing youth, young players through either. No. So you're talking about hindering and taking a backward step. But time will tell, Mal, for you. Scoring for Wales, highlight? Career highlight? Yeah, it has to be. 3-15? Yeah. and 15? Three and fourteen, but let's get the, the facts really right. Go on. Three and only started five games. Okay. So the rest were substitute appearances. The other nine, but started five. Were the three. were the three goals in the stats? I'm not telling you. Yeah, exactly. So if they weren't, then <laughs> you, you can't <laughs> but, say that. But hey, come on. So three and five is not a bad stat, is it? No, I'm only joking. Three and fourteen, and the, you know, I I I I'm one of them people. I I, I looked at Teddy Sheringham on the telly the other day. And, he remembers all his goals. You know, Alan Shearer remembers nearly all his goals yeah. if you spoke to him about it. So I, I, I definitely remember all my goals as well. Not just the Welsh ones, but all the other ones. And you know what? If I had my time all over again, I'd just do exactly the same thing. It's just, I wish I could do it all again. Yeah. But I can't. Last couple of questions from different people. The first one from uh, Duncan Thomas. What's Malcolm's take on a spat with David O'Leary at Highbury back in 89? And then there's a yeah. few pictures of handbags. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, we got, it, we the first, it was the first time ever, right, for two teams to be, get, to get fined 
from from the league, twenty five thousand pound each. Uh, Norwich against Arsenal, and it was uh, David O'Leary's six hundred twenty eighth appearance, which was a record amount of games, and he was getting his trophy before the game. I remember turning around to Andy Townsend and said, "Look, if he thinks he's going to have his own way today, he's not." So first minute. Ball's kicked out by Brian Gunn in the goal. I jumped from the side, like I always do. I got my elbow up just to, you know, elevate myself a little bit long, f- further up. And also knowing that he's going to be jumping in from the right-hand side. So he goes and heads my elbow. Of course, not my fault. Uh, so, <laughs> and he's never won. He's like Alan Hansen, never got himself dirty. Never made a sliding tackle. Great player. So anyway, he starts arguing with the referee. I'd elbowed him. That referee said, nothing wrong. Two minutes later, same again, Brian Gunn kicks the ball. I go from the other side this time, go up with my left elbow this time, elevate myself. This time I just catch him in his ear, yeah. as I've won the header, by the way. So now he's complaining again, because I'm jumping too early. I'm jumping when the ball's 10 yards away, so I'm already in the air, and he doesn't know when to jump. So he's absolutely snooted. After 628 odd games, he can't, he can't cope. He can't cope. So the third time is about 20 minutes gone. We've gone 1-0 up now. And let's score. No, Tim Sherwood scored, I think, the first one. Let's score the second one. Anyway, the score was 4-3 in the end to Arsenal. They won the game in the last minute. Penalty was saved by Brian Gunn. And then I think it was Niall Quinn toe-poked it in uh, at the far post. Anyway, <laughs> 20 minutes gone. I've gone up again, jumped early, and now he's bashed me straight the way through. So I've gone flat on the floor. Being six foot three myself, obviously. Five foot eight, and then I'm down on the floor. And instead of just, ah, oh, uh, he's got me this time, he's actually picked me up with my shirts and my shorts. And I'm like a fish in the air, just going with my arms and legs. And he's just got me like this. He's going, get rid of him to the referee. He's saying to the ref, get him off, get him off. He's carried me to the ref. And I'm swimming around like a fish in the air. It's hilarious, by the way. So I've got off him and I went, come on in. Anyway, and there was a melee of about 15 people. So, yeah, I was instrumental in starting that um, um, that melee at Highbury in that game. And both clubs got fined £25,000 each. First time it ever happened. So, all my faults, as usual, at that time. But good memories. Yeah, great memories. Uh, both of us work for Scoria, yeah. Welsh, Welsh Premier League, following all the games and stuff. I got a question, Craig Hogg. He was with Jan Dibno on the coaching staff. He's with Colin Bay now. Does Malcolm feel the Welsh Premier League needs to add to the amount of clubs in the top flight to maybe 16 to help generate further interest in the National League? What's your thoughts? Um, let me let me put, get one thing over. I think this, the, the new structure when it came in place was the best thing that's ever happened to the, to the League of Wales, my opinion. Because uh, what was happening beforehand was... There was four or five teams down the bottom there. They knew they weren't uh, ever going to pursue maybe finishing halfway or finishing the top half. And there was no really motivation for them uh, either to be able to do that. Uh, So they would not pay their players with six or seven games to go. Their players would turn up with only 11 bare players on the pitch or something like that. And it wasn't as professional as what it should have been. Okay, so when it went to 12, more clubs got more money. From, from the FAW, not enough still to what the rugby union get from the assembly. Uh, that is a big point that we should be on level terms now with our success on the football front as as our rugby front. It's not just two teams here, it's one country we're talking about. Um, so that's got to be put in. So 12 teams, yet yeah, the structure's gone brilliant because everyone's got 
something to fight about even after the break in the league in January tops if you finish seventh for, for the bottom six you've still got a chance of getting into Europe and we saw it with Bala they finished seventh and got into Europe one season so there's always something for them to fight about um, looking at the top six there's the, the three places for Europe I think that could be two places in the years to come but still there's always things you know to play for in that 12 if they went to 14 I'd be happy with yeah. if they went to 16 I think a lot of South Wales teams would have a problem financially unless there was more money thrown at it yeah. to travel up to Connors Quay on a you know, a dodgy Tuesday night, getting players off work uh, and then travelling up so there'd be more games. So I would like 14 teams in yeah. How uh, and, and stay with the playoffs and stay with the, the same structure as we've got now. Um, but maybe that will be in a year or two down the line. Uh, I do understand that it's getting a bit boring for some clubs and some teams. Um, but at this moment in time, I don't think the league's been at the highest level football wise as it's been for years you know the profile the image and 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 it's and it's different the premiership here in wales them 12 teams everyone wants to be in that premiership yeah. it wasn't like that before <clears throat> in the league of wales when there was 18 teams not everybody wanted to be in that league before everybody wants to be in that premier league now that's the difference that's a different feeling i get so but for 14 one team from down south and one team from up north that would just maybe they could cope with that financially down the line, all the, all the, all the clubs. Yeah. I've got one from uh, my old press officer at Hibs, a guy called Andrew Slight, or bald-headed Slighty, uh, a man who supports loads of clubs. I think he supports Millwall, Spurs, right? Hibs, no loyalty. Uh, his question <laughs> is, when Watford played Spurs in the FA Cup semi-final in 87, should they have fielded a teenage David James in goal rather than Gary Plumley? Do you know what? What a great question. Last from the past. Um, Graham Taylor, because uh, at that time you only had 11 outfield players and one sub. Guess who the sub was? Yeah, yours truly. Yeah. Um, I came on when it was 3 0 and I scored past Ray Clemens with a header um, in the semi final of the FA Cup. That's, that's the only. Uh, I've been in two semi finals FA Cup and I scored in one when we lost to Tottenham 4 1 and we lost to Everton 1 0 the Hillsborough disaster day. Where we played the other game, and every, every you know that game's forgotten, and so it should have been. But if, what he's asking there about Gary Plumley, he was uh, an estate agent. Yeah. His dad, Eddie Plumley, was a director of Watford Football Club, so there was a big contact between everyone there. Tony Colton, he broke his wrist in a game two weeks prior. Steve Sherwood dislocated his finger the Saturday before the game yeah. and he pronounced himself fit in that morning because I was doing the fitness test with him on a training pitch and I was hammering the balls top corner bottom corner and he was saving everything yeah. and an hour later Graham Taylor went into his room in the hotel and told him sorry Steve I've made my mind up Gary Plumley's pain okay. I don't know if there was any backhanders going on I don't think so yeah. but um, he made his decision and his decision was a, the wrong one. Not just because Gary wasn't known to the players in the dressing room, because everyone gave him a little bit of respect because we didn't know what kind of goalkeeper he was. Yeah. But we all knew that he was an estate agent. The worst part of it was when I had to hold Tony Colton back after the game. That once the game had finished, you know, Graham Taylor didn't even bother saying anything because we'd just lost in the semi-final. There was no point. Gary Plumley was the first one in the shower 
with his shampoo and conditioner, get himself all doddled up to go into the players' lounge that he'd never been in before. Yeah. And Tony Colton wanted to kill him. You know, because he thought we were all nearly in tears. Semi-final, chance to go to play the Wembley, FA Cup final, and he just got changed and did that. So, yeah, it was a big decision for Graham Taylor, of course, but um, it was the wrong one for sure. There is a question of Daz Billy, Govintha Malcolm, Pudichurir Gora, Vota, Uncle Percy. Okay. Uh, My Uncle Percy uh, was a good player, played for all the local teams, Bangor City, great in the air. You know, some great headers. He's got some Mars bars on his boat race, sorry, scars on his face from elbows and, 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 and heads. Uh, he always used to put his head in where, where it hurts. But you know what his claim to fame is? He scored for Bangor City against Stoke City when Gordon Banks was in goal. Yeah. And he keeps reminding me of that goal. But I keep telling him one thing. He'd lost his eye by then. <laughs> in the car crash. Is so, that right? So, so that's what I keep telling him. And he keeps saying, no, he hadn't. No, he hadn't. But anyway, you know, total respect to my Uncle Percy. He was a good player, good goal scorer. I used to watch him play when I was young. My dad used to take me and watch him and he could jump. And I wanted to, honestly, he doesn't know this, but he was a bit of a role model for me of being a, that small man, being able to beat the big man in the air. Yeah. And I learned a lot from him jumping from the side, you know, assessing that flight of that ball coming in and jumping early I, t- I coach players now and they still don't do it when it comes to match day yeah. jump when the ball's 10 yards away if you jump when it's above your head the centre half will win all day because they can use you as a leverage if you jump early when the ball's 10 yards away even 5 yards away they haven't got a clue how to assess the flight of that ball because you've jumped in front of them I remember, and, I remember your brother Gavin used to coach me when I was a young kid and he used to say the same so obviously, it was uh, it was passed down further than you, uh, and I was the opposite, wasn't I? I was the big lanky. Yeah, one. I know. You could, you the pressure, have... well, the pressure on me to win headers, <laughs> like fans. If I, if I used to lose a header, the fans used to go crazy, like looking at this big giant. I remember actually. How's he losing headers? Well, it doesn't mean that someone smaller can't jump higher, does it? <laughs> Do you know, I did a game, and you were playing for Swansea. I did quite a few games when you were playing for Swansea when he first went there, and you were playing Berry away. Yeah. and uh, we did the game and you know what I've got to tell you you didn't you didn't actually lose a header you didn't lose a header because Kenny Jackie would have killed you if you had I yeah. think because <laughs> Kenny shared rooms with me with the Welsh with the Welsh team and I knew what he was like as a person yeah. and you being six foot four and a half you know he would have wanted you to win every header there nah, and you did fair play just to round it off you know Graham Taylor your your manager oh. he was uh, obviously Kenny Jackie's main influence yeah he was yeah. my first was my first start game I scored my first goal for Swansea away at Walsall Graham Taylor was there and uh, I spoke to him after the game he was real complimentary saying I was the best best player in the park and stuff like that so that's that's my one and only meeting with uh, with Graham Taylor yeah the boss but it's it's been fascinating Mal I know for people listening to us conversing in English it's different but I, I, I think you've got a, a good story to tell to, to English people who maybe wouldn't have had the opportunity to hear um, yeah, I've been humped by, humped on the arm by a dog. Yeah, that, you know, that's, li- that's been, extra. <laughs> I have to pay for that. <laughs> I've enjoyed listening to your budgie. Uh, we'll probably do it again sometime. Tom Amal, dear Amal, boy. There we have it. Another one done. Huge thanks to Malcolm for being the guest on this week's show. Um, 
big thanks to him for his honesty really getting into the the his troubles and what led him to to those dark times i think sometimes we take for granted when we when we listen to people talking in that manner uh, because whether it's good some for some people it's it's like a cleanse discussing it and and, and moving on for, for others you know thinking back to those tough times can be a difficult thing so really appreciate that i know it's a story that's been told in in welsh uh, hopefully um just brings a different element to it in, in in english i think that i may have put the mic in the wrong hole on this little device of mine so we could be hearing a little bit more of the critters than uh, than what would have been ideal but hey they they took part in it i got humped on the arm by one as the chat was going on one of the dogs mish or mash uh, plenty of input by the budgie as well snowy so once again thank you hopefully you guys enjoyed if so get yourselves on itunes subscribe leave a review you know the usual stuff and uh hopefully you uh, you look forward to to the next few as much as i am thank you <laughs>